1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Hey guys, Lawrence here from the podcast. Uh, In just a second, you're going to hear an interview with Ahmed Youssef, uh, who's an Australian journalist, audio journalist, and James Montague, who's a freelance journalist. Uh, I'm going to explain everything in just a second. But If you hear anything during the podcast that you relate to, or you particular want to talk about with us then get involved on twitter at the front three you can message us or of course you can at us there um, and find the guys online as well it's a really interesting conversation and we want to start a kind of longer form uh, discussion about this sort of thing with the front three so head over there and enjoy the podcast So there's one thing that not many people talk about during the Euros, and that's all the different uh, cultures which get together within any one squad. And obviously there's 23 different guys there, a lot of people meeting up, uh, including managers and coaching staff and all those different kinds of people. And a lot of people don't, from the outside, get to see from what some private players uh, keep to themselves. And one of those aspects is religion, and a lot of players going to Euro 2016 will be Muslim. And so there's a really interesting side to that. And, you know, I, I, I saw a conversation between... James Montague and Ahmed Youssef on Twitter and sort of got got in touch with Ahmed, knowing him, and uh, James, we got we got through to you in, in the end, and sort of that sparked a conversation around what players do when they go to a tournament. And you wrote an article back all the way back in 2014 about this, which is I think I think a really good place to start.
0: Yeah, well, it's. Um... It's something that I've noticed. I mean, I, I moved to the Middle East in two thousand and four, um, when uh, to, to the UAE, and and obviously with with Ramadan actually moving forward in the Gregorian calendar yeah. uh, every every year, um, it's become more and more of an issue when it comes to international tournaments. It's something that I, I often saw when it came to the league in the UAE and league footballers. Um, and there was often discussion about what would happen, whether there was um, whether uh, the league should be postponed, um, whether because I mean it's, it's, I mean it's a, there's clearly a health issue when it comes to water. Um, but what, what's quite interesting is that it, it often you know society does kind of winds down during that period. But what's interesting and is that there's actually no definitive medical evidence that fasting. Uh, during Ramadan has any detrimental effect on on performance, which is which is incredible because you would think that it would it would have been obvious, but there is. I, I, I went out there and looked for it and it is absolutely inconclusive. And so we've had the Olympics that had partial um, uh, that had that had that had a kind of partial uh, uh, overlap with Ramadan, and then at the World Cup, which I was I was at covering some stuff for the New York Times. In 2014, we had the the knockout stages, and you could you can see that with the Algeria team, every every single player was affected by it, and they were um, honouring Ramadan. I mean, there are dependent on imams in different countries. There have been some examples, the UAE at the uh, 2012 Olympic Games, for instance, the highest authority in the land said that there would be, oh, the highest authority in the UAE said, gave them dispensation to delay Ramadan, to delay fasting, which is something that, that can be done. There's all sorts of, um, uh, I wouldn't say get out clauses because obviously it's a very important um, spiritual time as much as a, as, as a cleansing time as well. Um, but there's there there's, there's there are exemptions for when you're pregnant, if you're sick, if you're travelling. Uh, so these could could fall under the... well, not pregnant, but uh, some of these. So um, different teams follow it in different ways. And what's interesting, I think, at the 2012 Olympic, uh, sorry, 2016 European Championships, is I think it's the, the first time an entire tournament is going to yeah. be held over this over this period. And that, I hope, I mean, I don't know, but I hope that the medical, um, that, that people are looking very closely at this, I think this would be one of the first time they could really measure, um, you know, measure the impact and see whether it does have any effect. Because and I think know,
2: that that... That is one of the aspects that you cover in your article, is that, you know, especially at the Olympics, there are very yeah. direct ways of measuring that. You know, if it's a marathon or if there's sort of a very specific discipline, that makes it a lot easier. But because you say in your article one of the multifaceted sides of any sport, it sort of makes it more difficult yeah. to work out how it affects a player. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess that's a real issue, isn't it, for any medical staff? That they is. That there's so many different ways this could affect your game, you know, mentally as well in football. It's as much mental yeah. as it is physical.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's another issue that comes up. I've spoken to plenty of sports men and women who've, who've um, fasted, and some of them will... will Will say that actually it improves their performance because there's a discipline, um, there is, a, there is a, a, a psychological boost to what they're doing, and obviously these are very. I mean, when it comes to you know say placebo effect of something that the body's the body being healed by the mind thinking something, mm. uh, that's an incredibly tough thing to measure, mm. um, and I, I hope that this tournament allows some some form measurement. The only issue, I suppose, with it is that with the World Cup and with the Olympics, is that you, you, you get groups of players that are within a cu- quite culturally homogenous set. So, for instance, in, in, the, in the Algerian team, although many of them were brought up in France, you know, many of them were brought up in, in Muslim families within within France, so they all uh, had an Islamic cultural background, so they shared that experience. What is different, and we touched on it before, with de Chambre in particular, is it becomes a bit more problematic um, when it comes to the cultural... Um, facets of Ramadan within a much more mixed environment and how people and you, you get the impression um, that Didier Deschamps, you know probably doesn't uh, approve say that he didn't want to answer questions about Ramadan at, at press conferences that he was kind of angry that this issue was coming up and that the players who you know under some uh, areas within Islamic uh, uh, law could, could could get exemption and choose not to have it and when you see some of the comments made by Cantona and other former players and, and Karim Benzema as well, um, who's a Muslim, saying that you know people aren't being picked on, uh, on racial grounds, the current feeling within France towards Islamic, um, uh, well, fundamentalism, but that also has to be separated from, from Islam in terms of the Islamic population but when you look at the the the, the argument that's going on there I, you know I imagine it's probably a very difficult time mm. to be a practicing Muslim within uh, a practicing Muslim practicing Ramadan uh, in, in the French squad I mean others you know people were talking about Kosovar Albanians I mean obviously the famous uh, example of this is going to be Switzerland um which where you have uh Granada Xhaka and Jérin shikiri um who I believe were both fast during during the tournament mm. um so it, it it will be fascinating, how, because I mean the Swiss almost have a much almost have a more problematic relationship with the kind of um, with with culturally integrating Muslims who can be on the one side Swiss and also a Muslim at the same time. Yeah, um, so and that's be especially being like, it's
2: especially being challenged right now, isn't it? Considering sort of uh, you know the recognition of Kosovo and countries like that, as people's allegiances are maybe a little more split. What was originally Switzerland as a home is now being questioned almost because people are saying well Kosovo is now an opportunity for you yeah. would you go for that and that, and that's that's been very divisive because obviously Xhaka is now the captain of uh, Switzerland but maybe the guy who feels less appreciated Jordan Shakiri, is thinking about reverting or wh- wh- whatever you want to call it
0: well neither, neither I mean I spoke to both Shaka and Shakiri um, in the qualifier as they were trying to qualify for, for the 2014 World Cup and there's a fa- the famous game uh, where Albania played Switzerland which is of, of course going to be a rematch at the euro 20 2016 uh, finals and um, every player I spoke to I spoke to uh, Valon Barami, um, you know I spoke to a host of, of players who had split you say split allegiances but you know had Came from a different place. I mean, actually, see, what's interesting is that Granny Jack was actually born in Switzerland, but um, because he's, you know he's very young, so he was born in Switzerland. So that makes it slightly different. But a lot of the players talked about that. Um, you know that there was a, this this inescapable pull to their homeland, but at the same time, um, they're incredibly proud of the opportunities that Switzerland had given them. And if they hadn't come to Switzerland, then they would not have become the players and they would not have become the success stories that they did. So they were incredibly grateful for that. So I don't think actually uh, any of the players will swap if FIFA allows them to do it, which I don't think they even will because I mean, on the one side, you, it, it is a Swiss based organization FIFA and that would effectively tear the heart out of a Swiss national team. I can't see him doing it. Blatter, when I interviewed him about it was, it was dead against it. But, um, you know, I it's think a surprise. Also, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's quite important as well that you have um, national teams that are reflective of the populations that they they represent. And you know, there is a large, I think, it's three hundred thousand Kosovo Albanian population there. And um, there's a huge amount of, um, there's a huge refugee, like a, a second generation refugee population from various conflicts around the world that have settled in Switzerland. And I think it's very important that the national team reflects that, and it does reflect that. And I think if players then chose to leave and uh, to the kind of back to a place that they didn't really remember, but what I hope to see, you know, will be um, that there. I'm sure there are going to be players who um, who postpone their fasting, but for me, yeah, and- what I hope is it's completely accepted, and um, you know, it becomes a norm that it's this is this is. Uh, you know, unless unless it's, unless something comes out that you know they measure it and it is wholly detrimental to to a player's performance. But if anybody watched the the Algeria in the second round of the 2014 World Cup, you'd probably say that, probably that the best proof you can that it didn't.
2: Yeah, I mean, Ahmed, you've been doing some research for this conversation. I, what about you?
1: Oh, like like I've just been reading some stuff that like Frederick Canute who kind of said. Um, this is going back a few years. Like I think in 2009 he said, I try to respect my faith, because he's Muslim. Um, I try to respect my faith and it the best I can. It's sometimes harder to keep the fast because here in south of Spain it's very hot, but I can do it, thank God. Uh, and I guess it, one of the quotes is uh, um, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, Spanish-based uh, Muslims talking about fasting, whether they delay their, their, their fast, as, as James touched on, and do it after the sea after the the preseason, I think that was the the context then, or during the season, or during the tournament. But like, I think the thing that I want to touch on is like um, Didier reluctance to even understand or discuss Ramadan. When when you look at that French team, like um is not playing, but Coutinho Muslim. Paul Pogba, I'm pretty sure, is Muslim. Um, who else is? Uh, Benziem is not playing, but he's Muslim. There's a large portion of that French national team that's Muslim, and it's like you don't want to understand your your players' culture, religion, or practice during a crucial time of of, uh, of when you're playing. You're playing at home in France. This is quote unquote your your national team. So why aren't you understanding, embracing um, um, their culture, but, and also? I don't know about the suggestions about um, the thing about uh, Benzema and Hatem Banafa and the suggestions about racism playing partner because specifically with with both of them, one Ker Benzema kind of like blackmailing teammates with sex tapes and uh, allegedly, allegedly and allegedly, uh, yeah, allegedly, mm. allegedly, allegedly, um, and um, Benafa being quite. Hot and cold until this past season, where he had a really great season. But I can understand those two out of the squad. But I, but like that general point of him being reluctant to even discuss um, Ramadan is is kind of weird, don't you think?
0: Well, it's not weird, I, I guess, because you know there is a you know, very strong uh sense in France about leaving your religion, you know, at home when you come, you know, into public life or into 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 schools, into work. You know, that there is a French identity that um that you subsume yourself into. So they don't really have in Britain we have a, a very different sense of multiculturalism, which is we you know, you have your uh identity whether it's from where you come from, where your parents come from, where your grandparents come from. And that's accepted um, it's tolerated in public life to a greater extent than in, than in France. But in France, they have uh, a, a greater ideal that this is the French flag, this is the French identity. It's a secular identity, and you must first to be French, you must first accept that, and whatever happens happens at home. And so, um, I think Deschamps is very much playing into that. That you know, this is the French national team representing the ideals of France, and if this is something that you want to do, then. You do that on your own time, but when you're in when you're playing for France, you play play for a, a French ideal that perhaps um, is contrary sometimes to to religious dogma. Well, that's
1: I get I I get that point, but like um, especially in the context of France in 2016, with high like like lots of Islamophobia, uh, people feeling unsafe, and then the rise of, of terrorism being the justification of that Islamophobia, I would have thought, like, I am a national team coach. I've got a group, like, a lot of Muslim footballers who are participating in Ramadan in my squad. I think I should maybe talk about or, or just when talk, when asked about it, not be so
0: strange about it. Well, maybe. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, I would I would hope that he would discuss it a bit, a probably a bit more in depth than he has done. But I, but what what isn't surprising is, I mean, this is a discussion I've had with various French journalists over the years. You know, if you look at the issue, for instance, of um, that w- women wearing a headscarf or in hijab uh, or covering in public places, you know, it's very much an issue that's seen, well... You know, it is uh, discriminatory against women. Um, We don't believe in discrimination of women. We believe in a secular society, uh, you know, based on equality, fraternity, egalitarian. You know, we believe this should be how French society works. This works counter to that. So that's why we're banning it. So in a way, it's more ethical to have a banning of the hijab than allowing... Um, women to propagate and to kind of further something that they see as kind of uh, unequal. But then you, even that... What he is, what 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 I think... I mean, we're putting a lot of words in his mouth now and a lot of thoughts in his head, but, it, you know, to me, the way that he has approached this issue isn't unusual. For, 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 actually, it's absolutely atypical of the French attitude towards um, religious symbols and religious um, belief in public life. Uh, so for, you know, I mean, the amount of people I, who I agree with wholeheartedly on every other aspect of almost every area, whether it's politics, football, culture, anything, who will, you know, stand there and say completely, uh, you know, I mean, there is a point to this. I think there is, a, there is, a, there is an argument to be made that... You know, women should be prevented from wearing a headscarf. Whereas I would always argue that you shouldn't prevent anybody from doing anything if it's a personal choice, not influenced by outside cultural factors from home, from family. If it's a personal choice that somebody believes in, then it's no different whether somebody should you know, banning wearing a, a short skirt or wearing high heels but or no, wearing I, hijab. It makes it's, it's the same kind of area. And yeah. so, Gideon the Shop, I think, is 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 actually representing a very um, mainstream, standard French. Kind of, but it it, yeah. it, it, it does
2: it does it does come up there with some sort of conflict though doesn't it because actually the um the issue overall with a europe wide tournament is that it's not just obviously the host country is the the focus but at the same yeah. time when you have sort of a, a european wide tournament you're going to have for want of a better term a culture clash and you're going to have people sort of people's beliefs coming together at some point or sort of some yeah. conflicting and contrasting ideas I guess that's the issue is that when you have um, an organization which sort of preaches understanding and teamwork and you know they they run all the i the ads beforehand of i say no to racism and fair play and all those kind of things i guess you kind of hope that maybe the coaches and the the other people would um reflect the same but it, it sort of comes down to i guess how responsible those coaches and players feel towards the public and whether they feel that actually this is much more of a private matter it does There does seem to me to be a little bit of um, uh, the the press. Well, no, but but the press feel like they're owed answers, and actually, maybe a coach doesn't feel like that's even a subject for the press to cover. Um, Well,
0: it's it's also something that I think is relatively new to European based uh, tournaments as well. To have large number of of Muslims participating, It's, it's, it's a reflection of. Uh, increasingly multicultural society since the fall of communism in 1989-1990. Uh, the huge flows of people that we've had since then has been precipitated by technology, cheap travel, um, the media that's been able to help people to cross borders. So this is something that is, it, it, you know, in a way, it's not something that would have necessarily been a huge issue 20, 30 years ago. There would have been one or two players that may have had Uh, But there might might have been a Muslim, but I mean, it probably even wouldn't even be noticed that would have taken place. So now it's it's something larger. I mean, we do have teams where there is going to be a kind of homogenous, I guess, cultural internal dynamic. And if you look at uh, Turkey, for instance, you know, I mean, Albania, I know there'll be uh, quite a few Muslims on the team there, although um, there's a a large number of Christians there as well. So, you know, there are going to be majority um, Muslim teams, but it's something that, that Europe is very, Kind of new to in a way, and and, and it's a it's an extremely since since nine eleven really, um, you know, the the public attitude shifts towards public displays of Islamic faith and, uh, has changed as well, and and given the current circumstances in France, I think we've got to be careful not to to separate. I I don't know whether Deschamps is choosing his club, his team on a or his squad on a race, but I mean, I it seem it would seem ridiculous to me given the kind of Extremely diverse squad that he has picked. I mean, he doesn't seem to ring true to me. It seems like Benzema probably got some sour grapes. I don't know if I would take Atom Ben Arthur to uh, to Euro twenty sixteen. I mean, he like you said, he blows hot and cold. But you know, this this is a guy who was who's kind of on strike virtually at, at Newcastle. Um, couldn't get a game, and he, he has come back incredibly well in the French league. Mm. Um, and he looks he looks he looks the prospect that we thought he could become. But would you? guarantee him a place based i mean i'm not sure i would given his past but um and also france
1: have tons of uh tons of players of equal to if not higher level than than say hata manapa
2: yeah i mean absolutely yeah the players who are able to practically i guess that's the the issue here is that actually before maybe it was um you know there weren't so many muslim players so it, it didn't need to be so widely acknowledged um, and so now the people who are maybe central to some people's plans at the euros are Muslims themselves, and they you know it, they're almost they almost have to be acknowledged in that sense um and so also- the people are actually doing something you know as opposed to Ben Afra and maybe Ben Zamau sort of counted himself out of the tournament. you sort of get into a place where actually it's the people who are achieving within the business or in the the context of football that get to set the precedent and get to set the agenda and actually mm. maybe that's that's the issue is that we we see this as a, a, a I can't remember who it was, but there was someone who was sort of saying um, it was maybe on the football ramble. They were talking about, uh, you know, when you get there, you just do it like, it, you know, it doesn't matter if a stadium's finished or any of those kind of things. It just matters that the tournament happens. And I think maybe mm. we're looking at Euro 2016 from a very sort of European uh, base of multiculturalism is a complete idea and therefore it will happen completely. And actually, it's very similar to Euro 2016 Is an idea that some of the tournament is still being put together, some of the stadiums are still being put together, and some of the ideas are still sort of being acted out. So as we go, football is a really good practical way of practicing these ideas. Um, and, you mm-hmm. know, the diversity within any, within any squad is quite an interesting way to look at how people are approaching it. There are some fascinating, I mean, there are some very funny stories out there about uh, players sharing rooms and maybe one being Muslim and one not. I know there's an interesting one within the Dutch squad between, uh, between Van Persie and uh, his roommate, which maybe isn't repeatable on a podcast, but you know, it's certainly a funny story. Um, but but what, what, I, what I am interested in is the practical side, James. And uh, Ahmed, I don't know what you've seen as well, but I was speaking to a guy from Goa who was saying that you know when you get towards the cricket season or you get towards certain seasons, players actually from a month before will prepare for Ramadan to be able to physically cope with that so they don't actually just do the month they do a little time before to sort of um prepare their body for fasting and then afterwards as well to come back to normal really and that, that's quite an interesting idea because uh, james in your article the sports scientist didn't maybe
0: didn't seem as sure yeah i mean the science isn't sure but and it also depends where you're where you um practicing ramadan as well i mean if you are in um, the north of northern europe um shorter days uh, longer nights uh, then in many cases ramadan can be something that is it is it, all it is really is a change of sleeping patterns because you just you, you, you flip it over i mean that's like when you go there when you live in the middle east you see that you know that, that life life begins a lot earlier in the day and finishes a lot earlier and uh, you know there's there's two periods that like basically you sleep during the day you have maybe a little bit of work in the morning so every office every government office every private office you know there's there's work in the morning um and and that's pretty much it it's a half day all the way through you you sleep during the afternoon wait for iftar break the fast and then you know so life happens at night so it's that's just uh, you can flip that around there's there's a great story i read about there's a it, was, it turned out to be a false story, but in the Oman times, there was a rumour going around that there was a village in the mountains uh, in Oman where uh, Ramada, where uh, a day only lasted for two hours. So they'll get the, the inundated, with yeah. uh, well, inundated with requests. Yeah. Inundated with requests. Well, maybe we should go and do it there because, you know, then you only have to fast for two hours. But it turned out it was just in the middle of a, a bowl of a huge mountain. So although it's always dark, that they had to have a religious decree about whether it was daylight or not. And the, the Omani imam said, yes, it, it is technically still daylight, even though it's not very light there. Interesting. Um, so it depends where... It depends where, it,
2: where... Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a Muslim in Iceland, then it's it's definitely a much more pleasant Ramadan. But, but I guess that's also the point. No, is that,
1: no, it's it, not. No, it's not. It's 23. You have to... But this is the thing with the, the time thing, is that, um, say, for example, if you're in the... Uh, up in the mountains like um, James said, or if you're in Iceland where um, it can 23, possibly four. be twenty three hours in, <laughs> don't live in hour, yeah. the <laughs> Until there's daylight yeah you, you usually I think you go to say um, um, uh, the the you go to you go to Makkah and you use their kind of um, makhrib, their time of sunset um and, and their day of how they judge when to break fast or not.
2: Because, because I guess that kind of it, uh, that would almost defeat the point if you only went to a place where it was two hours, right? Because the yeah. whole point is you're supposed to be hungry. It's not supposed to be a, a sort of um, <laughs> two-hour. Oh, look, I did it, and then not. I mean, have you ever have you ever uh, observed Lent? I've observed Lent, and, and what I what I've done, uh, having having a Muslim girlfriend, but not sort of uh, using that in any way to qualify any experience. Um, fasted for weekends. <laughs> um, <laughs> And maybe three days in a row. And I found that hard. Um, you know, so I can't imagine exactly. what it's like to kind of
1: Mate, mate I, like I passed that. the whole Ramadan when I was it, 10 years exactly. old. Exactly.
2: But that's, I mean, that that is, is that unusual for some people? Because actually, there are some people who are no, you know, no. uh, 12, 13, 14 who still don't do it. But then, you know, there are, I guess, there's different ages and different limits for each culture, aren't there?
1: It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it really depends. I'm do, you, do you
2: still play football in Ramadan? I mean? uh, uh, do you do fiber side and those sort of things? Yeah, yeah I know you do a side. And I, how do you cope with that?
1: Yeah, but uh, I, I don't fast. Um, I'm I would type one diabetes, so okay. I'm unable to to fast at this point. And um, yeah, so I have to take insulin during okay, well, the day. So that's fair enough. I,
2: yeah, yeah. Although some people would say you still should try, um, but that's, <laughs> that's
1: fair enough.
0: Um, also, but also there's a, there's a, there's something else to. to you know, put here and there's something that's very important about, you know, I observe when living in the Middle East and it's no different from Christian societies when it comes to Lent, you know, yes. Okay. It's a religious obligation. It's something that you should do. And it's something that people probably have the best intention of starting and doing the vast majority of them will fail. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's going to, you know, because in the same way that, you know, every society people are busy, they've got stuff to do. Um, God, they'll be like, "Oh, do you know what? I'm hungry. I'll have a little bit." People think that Ramadan is some kind of—it's almost like a, you know, feeding to this idea that it's just this cultish thing that if you're a Muslim, you need to do things exactly as the book says. But actually, when you go to uh, kind of many, well, I mean, from my large experiences in Arab societies in particular, you know, it's no different from Lent. It's just normal people going about their lives. This is a cultural as much as a religious experience. Nine times out of ten, most of them won't do it properly. They'll do it because it's, it's a little bit like having Lent or a little bit like having like a Christmas uh, when it comes to Eid, and, um, and, you know, and it'll kind of tick a box and, and that's it, and you move on. Yeah. And so it's... To it's, an extent.
1: To sorry. an extent, like, what's oh, yeah. the thing? Different, different places, different kind of experiences. Um, cool fact.
0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Kind of like I like what I've noticed say for example people use Omelana as a as a way to to kind of make to to get closer to God for example. So say if they're not observing prayer or the or being the the most righteous or pious muslim they will take ramadan for example and fast the whole ramadan pray every day in ramadan and then go back to
0: however they were before ramadan if you know what i mean yeah so it's, it's yeah, i mean it's,
2: that's it
0: i mean there's so many people i've met you know that friends people i have met on my travels you know They'll do like we spoke about it earlier. You know, if you see in in Albania or in Kosovo, uh, Ramadan being practiced there. You know, people say it's just you know, yeah, I'm I'm practicing Ramadan. I'm not drinking rakia. You know, the amount of people I've met in Egypt who are like, you know, I'm not going to take cocaine this month. You know, that's the <laughs> that's, that, 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 that is similar to Lent in a sense. You know, you know, it's it's like you know, I, oh, I'm going to be bad all year, and I'm going to just be a little bit better during this month, and then you know, it, it, it kind of salves my conscience a little bit, you know, and so. Um, so it's, 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 yeah. I, I think I just want to get know, away from the that. idea that there is this thing that that is incredibly, um, you know, cultish about about Islam or any kind of religion, and that people once they're in it, they're kind of, you know, they have this and they'll do this kind of and almost obsessively. When actually the vast majority are completely recognisable to how, say, us growing up in a Western society around Christianity as a dominant religion would completely recognise. You know these these flawed, botched attempts at kind of trying a little bit of religiosity and actually kind of fa- largely failing, but but it being being more than anything, even even more than the religious obligation, um, a cultural event. You know. Yeah, I, I mean, I do find that. Yeah, quite and
2: I guess I guess go, go ahead on
1: uh, Yeah, and I and I guess this is the thing, right? There are like over a billion Muslims in the world, and they all practice differently. You go to you go to Indonesia. Um, they'll practice Islam differently. If you go to um, Somalia, if you go to India, if you go to to um, Nigeria, if you go to Turkey, anywhere, like there, most Turkey, yeah, Turkey, very secular compared to, to other places. But then even some places in Turkey, uh, Sufism is so strong, and their like Sufi kind of like way of is being very minimalist in life. And then you go to other parts of Turkey where it's more cosmopolitan, more European, more Western, and it's completely different. It's just like it, I feel like when we talk about Islam, we think about it in a very narrow view, and, and I think you touched on that, James, right? And when we think about Muslims as these, and I think I think everyone when when everyone thinks Muslim, they think this Middle Eastern dude um, um, with a with a long beard and with a with a with a, with a khamis and with a ticket, and, and, and that's it, you know what I mean, like, and there are different kinds of versions of Muslims all around the world.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and obviously you do also have the um, the side of it, essentially, that it, within football, there's always the sense of other, so you've got kind of, you know, if you're, if you're out there individually experiencing whatever it is on the football, but you've got 10 other people with you, you have to work in unison with them, but at the same time, you know, if, if uh, I, I guess you've this is the interesting side is people are always saying to me, "You're an England fan. Why don't you back the England 23?" And my reply is, "I don't relate to any of those 23. I couldn't feel further away from Jamie Vardy. I couldn't feel further away from, you know, any of those guys." So there's there's this interesting idea that all these different cultures come together as one twenty three and somehow we're supposed to relate to all those guys equally purely because we all come under the same flag.
1: But this thing, I, I guess, when we talk about like national team football as this kind of like sometimes uncomfortable like faux patriotic nationalism that borders on neo-Nazism at certain points and well, it's just oops, like oops, yeah I wouldn't say that maybe, maybe, maybe that.
2: in Australia, oh, maybe like, in like Australia.
1: Yeah. It, oh yeah yeah oh well, like yeah, in Australia, yeah definitely in Australia like um you can see that a lot of Southern Cross tattoos and and have you and all that kind of stuff but like I feel like when it comes to national team football there can be um, I guess a, like a, a like a potential for people to see it as uh, for example when you say this person doesn't represent me this, doesn't, this person doesn't re- represent me because he doesn't look like me so therefore they shouldn't be a part of the national team or um, and all this kind of Kind of, um, I guess, ways we think about nationalism and the way we think of national identity, and I guess the issue with that is how that can kind of take over the way we um, we see people in terms of life. For example, whether it be Muslim um, playing and, and they're fasting, and the person's like, oh, why, why is this person playing if they if they're not eating, they're not fit, or what have you, and all that kind of of rhetoric. And I was talking to. Um, this French rapper called Medine, um, a few like a few months ago, and he's <laughs> he, he lived, in, lived in France during a, a very kind of like um, uh, Islamophobic, um, classist, kind of racist, um, right-wing emerging, and uh, I, I suggest anyone listening to. to- check out his music is really interesting uh, and like he was talking about how, how whenever he talks about whether it be race class or, or or anything of that notion like everyone always picks out the fact that he's Muslim um, the fact that he's talking too much and being too Muslim and all this kind of thing and he's not being French enough and that idea of national identity always comes around to what what is French identity what is um, I'm in Australia. What is Australian identity? What is English identity? And it's almost always <coughs> very narrow.
2: I guess that is yeah. And and James, I guess that's what I found most interesting about your article was the the fact that there 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 does seem to be a general consensus on how to approach this, and that actually I guess the good thing is that uh, the we're essentially finding out. This is the practical period within football uh, within which yeah. we find out uh not whether ramadan works but whether football and ramadan is a combination which uh and how that sort of combines so it's, it's a very practical way of playing out uh, you know a lot of cultural issues i guess
0: i mean it'd be fascinating to see it but again i, w- I want to make you know you know be clear about this i mean france has i think a very unique way of looking at um identity and the reflection um of itself in its national team squad and mm. You know, um, populations change over time. The type of immigrants uh, that a country takes in over time, over decades, changes, and that eventually feeds into national football teams. Which I think are, in today's world, where you know borders have become much more porous, are actually what probably some of the last few bastions of a kind of homogenous. Kind of, it's something that you can look at, like a flag or or, or an anthem or something yeah. like that. Like a national sporting team is a very, very rare, rare beast like that. And whatever problems we, you know, we have in in integrating, accepting uh, those new cultures, which happens every time, whether it's 1930s Britain with Jews or 1950s. Um, britain when it came to uh, the immigration from the caribbean islands the Windrush, you know era mm. um th- those eventually feed into the national team but one thing that we can eventually we can always say with certainty is that it's always eventually accepted you know it becomes the norm becomes a norm um it takes sometimes decades and i think with the uh, i think it quickens now because of because of media because of the kind of accessed information that we have, that 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 kind of uh, problematics uh, kind of coming to terms with the new reflection of what a city or a country looks like, um, it, it, it will happen. It will happen in, in France as much as it happens in... It, it will happen with England and it will happen with... As it has already happened with England. I mean, if you look at England now, I mean, we, we were looking at... I mean, only 30 years ago having the first kind of black player. Yeah which, you know, seems... It, so, in that, it's going from there to where we are now, uh, I think it's actually quite... Um, I think it's quite, quite positive. I think it's quite positive how, how the national football team... Because you've got to remember is that the, the main issue with uh, kind of incorporating different identities and cultures is usually when you have major problems, whether economic huge distortions in society but the pro- the great thing about sport is it is absolutely meritocratic yeah it's completely meritocratic so you, you you if you if you stop um playing your best players just because they happen to be a muslim or just because they happen to be during ramadan or just because they happen to be a Sikh or black or you'll lose and you have to and one one great example of this is if you look at the israeli national team you know israel is an incredibly uh, divided society internally between um, Ashkenazim and, and Mizrahim Jews um, but also between the Arab population and, and, and the Jewish population but you, uh, Bidouin as well but if you look at this national team you know it's the pro- it's the most visible place where Arabs exist within Israeli society um, some of them don't sing the Hatikvah some of them uh, are quite open about that and it's kind of accepted because you know they, they are the best players so, so actually sport Although you know sometimes you see chance, sometimes you see fans saying you know bad things, and that it's difficult to drag them along sometimes into you know along with what's happening on the pitch. But the meritocracy of sport, I think, allows um, in 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 a much quicker way than almost any other kind of area of society kind of bringing together an an, an eventual understanding and acceptance of different cultures. Well, it
2: almost forces it, doesn't it? Because that's the issue is that from one side, you could say, well, these people don't embrace them until they're good at football. So they're almost useless to them until those players are good. Or you could flip that and say these players have forced their way in and are using um, quite what is actually quite a trivial sort of subject, which is a sport, to to make a much bigger point, I guess. So
0: it it sort of goes... And it's really tough the first generation of players um, that have to break through that barrier. They they have to be twice as good as anybody else, twice as tolerant as everybody else to the abuse. I mean, if you think of the kind of famous black players, West Ham in the 1970s and 1980s, coming through, Clive Best. Clive Clive Best, you've got, um, you know, you had uh, Viv Richards, other players like that, Um, um, you know... uh, if you think of kind of John Barnes, you could, John, John Barnes, John Barnes
2: signed for uh, Liverpool, I think, uh, 29 or maybe 30 years ago today, the day that we're recording. Yeah. so interesting. But, uh, well, did I mean, I say,
0: sorry, did I say Viv Richards? I mean Viv Anderson. Sorry, Viv Anderson. <laughs> I realised Viv Richards. Although Viv Richards did play uh, international football, he played for uh, Antigua and Barbuda. I think he made uh, one. I,
2: this is one thing I never get: is why more people don't. I mean, you know, a lot of people are saying there's a massive draw to play for England. I don't get why if I was, uh, you know, from, uh, say, a CONCACAF country, why you wouldn't choose to play for Bermuda. There is no pressure on you at an international level. And you get to go to some think of the hottest and best hotels in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I well, just think you about it. They, they, they they
0: don't. Um, I mean, if you go to that level of football, the, the, the hotels you stay in are absolutely appalling. The organisation is awful. <laughs> Uh, the corruption is endemic, um, you know, you're playing really terrible pitches, no crowds, like, it is, like, the players I've met, and I've met plenty of players who've played for Jamaica, have chosen uh, to play for Montserrat, who've chosen to play for uh, Antigua and Barbuda, when they get to uh, these places where they're playing, and, and in many cases, they've been chosen because um, because of a grandparent that was born there, so they've, Many cases have never even been there for the first time. Mm. And when they go there, you know, it's a, it's an absolute, like they have to bring their own kit. They have to br- you often bring kit for other people, bring money along to pay for like, the drivers and stuff. I mean, it is a really, it's, you're really on the edges of, of international football with that. So I can kind of understand it's a tough slog. It's a commitment. Where you're going to, at the end of it, also not really probably going to get anywhere because you're you're probably not going to qualify for a World Cup finals. Yeah. You might might reach a, a regional tournament, but um, my point is, if you
2: pick if you pick CONCACAF, you pick CONCACAF, yeah. you're going to visit some of the most beautiful islands and some of the better cities in the world. Just make sure it's a place where you've got beautiful islands and beautiful cities. That's all that matters to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, mean you know, it's...
1: Yeah. sorry, carry on. When you think about, just say, for example, Jamaica, Sterling, um, Sturridge, just two that come to mind, that if they played for Jamaica, I'm pretty sure they would steamroll CONCACAF and make the World Cup in a
0: heartbeat. But but that's yeah, an but example. I mean, they, but, yeah. but equally, it's... it's um you know, I mean, they. they I mean, I know uh, Sterling was born in in Jamaica, wasn't he? And he came over as quite a young boy. But I yeah. mean, you know, they're, culturally, they're English. I mean, they, they're English. They're yeah, they're, they're they British. Are and so, usually, what you find is, I think, um, certainly at that age. I mean, if if, it's, it's, if you, Kosovo being a prime example, it's when players are older, and that's when it becomes problematic. Well, not problematic. I, I guess it's just for them, it's a much more of a harder decision. Yeah. You no, know, I remember Eduardo when he um, played for Croatia. Um That you know, it was at what point um, do you become somebody who's who's just lived in a place and wants to play international football, or where you've gone to a place and you have ingested, uh, taken on board, uh, and have become part of the part of the kind of the the environment? And I think Eduardo was very much on the on the edge of that because he was somebody who. Whose parents, I believe, moved to Croatia. He was very, it was a young boy, but not that young. I think 13, 14 years old, and you know, learned Serbo-Croat, spoke the language, and that was, and that, I think that's that's at the very edge. And then you've got other examples when when uh, Adnan Januzaj was looking uh, to play for whatever national team he qualified. He could have qualified for six different national teams, including Serbia. Wasn't
1: they talk about England?
0: and England because he he'd lived there for long enough, uh, at the right time yeah. long enough that he might have qualified uh for, i think he needed a couple more years but he would have qualified for it mm. um and i think that's that's on the other edge of it you know that that's on the other edge there there's nothing wrong with i mean i'm i'm half polish my mother's polish um you know if i was good enough to play international football i would uh, I would almost certainly play for England. That would be, I, I'm culturally English, I grew up in England, um, you know, I speak English, kind of all right, you know, and so I'm English, you know, but... You're a pretty you know, I, well too. <laughs> you should see my Polish. Yeah. But, the, um, but the, I, I always considered myself English 51% and Polish 49%. I didn't think, I didn't, never saw that as a, as, a, as a kind of conflict in any way, but... Um, because if your mother, your mother's tongue is very important, culturally at home, the food, all these kind of things, Polish church, religion, the culture of that, um, these are very important things. So, you know, I could, but the only, if I'm honest, the only way I'd play for Poland is if I wasn't picked for England. And I think that, (laughs) and, and, you know, that is the reality of, of, I think every sports person, apart from those that have, I think you know a, a, a different type of narrative, like the Kosovar players who were forced from their homes and who found you know who were nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, and very much lived within um Kosovar uh, former Yugoslav communities where that uh, that identity was kept strong and alive because you know you're a refugee that's been forced out. it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a decision. To to have a better life somewhere else, you you're 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 torn away from from your motherland, and so um, I think that is a that's a different type of decision. But when when you think about that, um, you know certainly players who've got uh, roots in in the Caribbean, um, you know, nine times out of ten, nine point nine times out of ten. They would they would choose England because they're English or Scottish or yeah. Uh, or whereas they were born or, or grown well, I think up. I would only consider it if they didn't if they if they yeah, if they didn't uh, didn't <laughs> manage to get uh, picked up for England. That is interesting. Um,
1: yeah, I think that's to do with I guess the the Caribbean English kind of diaspora and culture that 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 has grown over England grown in England for over like I don't know fifty years. Or so? Something like that. Like, I guess there's been.
0: The, um, I can't remember what year it was in the 1950s when the Windrush uh, boat came over, but it means we're talking, yeah, I mean, mass, uh, or mass, I mean, large scale kind of Caribbean immigration from the kind of 50s onwards. Um, I guess that
2: is also so part of the so there's there's like it, It's financial as well, though, isn't it? It's financial because, you know, uh, uh, I suppose it's, it's easier to get anywhere else in Europe than it is to fly back to the Caribbean at some point. Um, and, you know, as, as that becomes cheaper, I, w- I wonder whether that will change in time. But, or maybe, I, but I also, mean, it's
1: this whole thing about marketing and this whole thing about if you're English, if you, if you play for like a, like a national team like England, you're more marketable or whatever. Yeah, you can get, uh, but if you I mean, it's a fact, you, get, a Jamaica, you can get like the bigger
2: but, boot deals. Yeah. Yeah. Although yeah, I, I guess as those as they, those uh, markets grow, I guess that's the point. Is you know, would you rather be remembered as a legend with your own football boot, or would you, would you rather be remembered as the person who was the first one to, sort of, you know, spark a wave of football revolution wherever you lived? You know, I guess there's different yeah. kinds of values, aren't there? Um, but I think there's, there
0: there well, is just my There listening, is listening, I think really, really, hmm. the, the important point here, I think, is that that when people make that decision, and I've seen this when I wrote thirty-one 0 this is this is a core issue yeah. about what identity was and what what representing a national team was and what your upbringing said about them. You know, we've just seen Haiti lose 7-1 to Brazil. And, you know, I was there at the first game that they had in Haiti post-earthquake in 2011. And this is a discussion that was going on in the squad. You had very good Haitian players, I mean, who had survived the earthquakes, who had grown up one meal a day, you know, um, you know, learning to play street street football had terrible diet. Probably, probably contributed to them not developing physically. Um, probably as big as you know, or, or as strong as they they would have liked. But technically, very good. And then you had, you know, a, a, an influx of second generation Haitian immigrants who some of them had never even been to Haiti before, um, didn't speak Creole, uh, but you know, had grown up in 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 kind of Haitian cultural environments in New York or Paris or places like that. Um, you know, and they, they were sincere. They were sincere about about what they wanted to do and help, and how they knew that like it was important for the national team to provide some kind of symbol uh, at a time when the country. I mean, I remember it was 2011 Haiti. Of all the places I've been to in the world, was literally the worst place I've ever been in the world. It was the most hopeless, um, d- destroyed. Um, uh, it seemed. To, it seemed to, It seemed like it was an. It was. A, it was an impossible conundrum to fix. You know, just people sleeping in the just the worst conditions I've, that I've ever seen. You know, and you know, and they're very sincere about it. But they, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that every single one of those players, if they had been picked up by their their the national the nation of, from which they were born or had their greatest memories from, they would never have been there. So it's it's definitely a secondary choice, and very few people um, who have that um, choose choose a country eventually based on um, a genuine feeling of identity with somewhere else.
2: yeah.
0: Um, and one of the, mm. I, I li- literally one of the only ones that I've found has been uh, the issue going on between Albania, Switzerland, and, and Kosovo. Kosovo. That's the only place where it is, it, you know, where people who have been, have been dragged away from, from somewhere and perhaps, you know, would, would, would consider going back, even though they've spent the most formative years in a in a in a different country that has given them everything that they, that they, they they've ever wanted and, and nurtured their talent and would still continue to go back. It's probably probably the only example. Every other one I think is down to a kind of I guess a, a very practical choice about what's best
2: for them and their career. That's what I, that's what I quite enjoy was uh and, and I think you used the best figures at the end of your article to take it back to what we were originally discussing was the uh, the Torres and yeah. the, uh, the the different approaches of Yaya and Kolo. and Kolo having this just sort of effervescent personality, you know, everyone wants him around the dressing room, everyone wants him around the change room. And he just sort of says, uh, you know, the first five days of fasting are the hardest. But after that, it, it, you know, it generally goes down the line if you feel amazing, you know? And yeah. then uh, Yaya with his reply, which is basically, are you kidding? I'd die out there. Um, yeah. And th- th- that's what's kind of interesting is, what J- James, in your opinion or, you know, in your experience, who have you found who sort of approached uh, the cultural clashes or the cultural... Contrasts in football when you've been down the years interviewing people.
0: Well, I mean, I, again, going back to Israel, I think one of the most the people that made the biggest impression on me, I think, in that respect, was Abbas Sawan, who uh, long retired now, but the captain and um, the figurehead of, of Beni Saknin, which is which was the first Arab uh, football club in Israel to win a major title, the State Cup in two thousand and four. Mm. Um, Meeting him um, was very much. I I, I felt I was really. You you meet you meet a lot of monosyllabic imbeciles in in my line of work, and this guy was this guy was like. I mean, he was a. (laughs) uh, This guy was the exact opposite of that. He was um, eloquent. um, He was measured. He was exactly what you would what you needed in the Middle East and in Israel, especially at that time. I mean, this is a guy who straddled both worlds who happily represented the Israeli national team. It was his country. Mm-hmm. He was proud. It was his country at the same time. He was a Muslim and had family who had fled Haifa, um, had their houses taken away from them in the, in the Nakba or the creation of Israel in 48. Um, and he, he, uh, wanted to represent not just for, uh, for the Israeli Jews within Israeli society. um, he wanted to represent to them that actually, you know, the twenty percent that make up population are Arab, you know, they aren't the enemy. They can be Israelis. They aren't fifth columnists. All of them. They can be um, part of this country. You can have a multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic society. It doesn't have to be um, a purely Jewish state. And he was he was very by, you know, it wasn't even through interviews. It was through action. It was by playing for the national team. And not seeing the Hatikha, not singing the National Anthem, but scoring a goal and celebrating it wildly. You know, these all seems contradictory, but they they weren't. Mm. They were incredibly powerful. And then on the other hand, it was also a message to the Arab population, which is, you know, we can't stop referring to ourselves as Palestinians. We are Israeli Arabs. This is our home. Our you know, we are here, we've you know, there is there's a point of view that many Israelis point out that the the quality of life for Arab Israelis, although there is definitely a question of racism within within that society towards uh, the Arab population, there's definitely uh, huge issues about that. But their quality of life is far greater than not just um, Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, but other Arabs kind of around the Middle East. Mm. Um, so it was also a message to to them that you know you can do this, you can be Israeli, and it's not some kind of um, capitulation to your to, to your uh, to your family's past roots, mm. you know, and so. I mean, I think he was probably one of the most one of the most inspirational people I ever met in that respect. I mean, I to be honest, I haven't uh, checked where. I mean, I hope he hasn't joined ISIS or anything like that because there's been a couple <laughs> of, uh, you know, I, I say all this about how what great man he is, and then and then you know I'll, I'll go and headline. find out he's, he's the, You know, he's, he's the new jihadi John or something, but uh, which he isn't by the way. I make mean, that yeah. absolutely clear. But um, but he's um, but he he was a guy I think who um, you know who was born in a country had conflicting identities both within himself within his family and within his society but managed i think through football to show something um incredibly positive out of that and and you know it was it was a pleasure meeting him. i mean it's a while now i mean i, I think it was about eight years ago that i met him for the first time but i met him over, over several times but um I've, there's a great documentary about about um benny Siknin and and winning the state cup in uh and what that meant for the for the
2: what, what was that documentary?
0: what was that documentary called? Uh, I was called? I think it was called uh, Sons of Saknin Okay,
2: we, we'll try and find a link to that, um, and yeah. we can obviously link to your work as well, James. There are a lot of people out there who I don't know they've probably seen you on things like Copper 90 and uh, you know other things like that. If if anyone wants to go out there and find your work, uh, wh- whereabouts will they find you?
0: Best place, um, well, at the moment, I am about two weeks away from trying to finish a book that I'm working on, which is, uh, so I've, I've kind of been buried in a, um, a travelling around researching that, so that's pretty much what I've been working on, but uh, if you go to my Twitter handle, James Piotra, J-A-M-E-S-P-I-O-T-R, then I, I usually post everything on there, so BBC World Soccer, uh, BBC World, um, sorry, I don't want to say World Soccer, I always get that mixed up. Uh, BBC World Service, World Football Show, mainly, and uh, World Soccer Magazine, New York Times. Um, just some of the biggest names. Just some just, of the biggest th- names around. But you know, don't just, worry just, about just, that. just, just, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's all a bit haphazard and it's all a bit piecemeal. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's none of it's really a bit like my mind. None of it's very organised, very well. So. Um,
2: but he writes some great books and um, makes some great subjects. And uh, James is fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming up. A pleasure. And Ahmed, the same to you.
1: Thanks. Pleasure to be on.
2: James Montague and Ahmed, Yusuf of there. Head over to their Twitter handles, which are in the description below. And of course, you'll be able to find them through the Front Three on Twitter itself, at The Front Three, the numeral three. If you found anything during the podcast that you thought was particularly interesting, come and have a chat with us because we want to know about your experiences to do with a cultural crossover in football. We'll see you again real soon, right here.